Human beings have an uncomfortable relationship and a checkered history with power. Those without it often crave it and at times will do terrible things in order to obtain it. Those who have it have frequently abused it, using position and privilege for their own advantage and to the detriment of others. And this shouldn't surprise us much, given the fact of the fall in Genesis 3 and the effects of mankind's headlong plunge into sin and self-exaltation. Indeed, our culture is awash in a worldview, a way of, uh, of understanding life and reality that is inclined to carve up all of humanity into two simple categories, those who have power and those who do not. This is a basic summary of what's called critical theory. And even if you're not familiar with that language, I'm quite certain you've been exposed to its way of thinking. Everything is about power. And power is always, or at least almost always, self-serving. And so the values that derive from that worldview tend to uh, come down to trying to topple those who are in power, who have cultural and social capital, as it were, and sort of turn the tables. But is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Uh, to frame the question as uh, Bobby Jameson does, uh, one of the pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, in his own message on our text today, how does God treat those in power? And how does he use his own? Well, if you turn to Zechariah chapter 9, we'll be studying three chapters this morning. Zechariah chapters 9 through 11. It's on page 748 if you're using those black ESV Bibles that are on the chairs near you. If you're using a different edition of the Bible, I can't help you with the page number. Near the back of the Old Testament. And just for context, uh, the last section, the final section of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14, is quite different from what's preceded it, both in format and in tone. The vivid apocalyptic visions are gone, replaced by straightforward prophetic oracle. Uh, Zechariah in these chapters sounds much more akin to what you would expect to read in, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah. Even the figures that featured so prominently in the book's first half, Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, the governor, the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem, are not even mentioned in the concluding six chapters of the book which points us at least to the fact that some time has passed. The temple's been completed and, and the people have sort of moved on. We don't know exactly how much time has passed. We're not told. But these six chapters are comprised of two separate distinct oracles. That is sort of prophetic messages or sermons, as it were, from God through the prophet Zechariah. Each of these oracles is three chapters long. You can see that arrangement by observing the first phrase in chapters 9 and chapter 12, respectively. It begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, is against the land of Hadrach. And then if you flipped over to chapter 12, you see the very same phrase begin that chapter, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So these are two clearly distinct and separate prophetic messages that the Lord has given through Zechariah. My plan 
Lord willing, is to explore each of these two oracles in turn. Uh, the first one today, chapters 9 through 11, and the second one next week, uh, chapters 12 through 14, which will conclude our study in Zechariah. And that will free us up to reflect on and feed on uh, other encouragements from God's word in the remaining Lord's days that we have to gather together, as many his, as he gives us. So returning to our questions for the day, how does God treat those in power and how does he use his own? Well, the text of Zechariah 9 through 11 gives us two broad answers to that question, but not exactly in like a linear sequential way. So bear with me as we jump around a little bit in the text today. We're not going straight from 9-1 through the end of, of chapter 11. The first way that it answers the question of how God relates to power concerns worthless shepherds and God's judgment. Worthless shepherds and God's judgment. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, the first three verses, I'll read those for you. Ask rain from Yahweh in the season of the spring rain, from Yahweh who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For Yahweh of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Well, Israel's past leaders, their shepherds, have sought the aid of household gods invoking the, the blessing of false pagan deities uh, to bring rain and abundance to the land. And God chastises them, urging them, let the people ask me for rain, right? I am the one who makes the storm clouds. I am the one who sends rain in the spring season. Let them ask me. So the leaders of Israel, those who should have championed God's word and led the people to trust him and worship him have instead carried them into idolatry and foolishness. You see this list of descriptions of the kinds of resources that these shepherds of Israel have led the people to. You see uh, that they're, led to, they're given nonsense. They're told lies. They're fed false dreams. They're given empty consolation. This is the, the way that the people of Israel have been led because their shepherds, their leaders, have not led them to turn to Yahweh and seek his help, but they led them into idolatry and foolishness. And God's anger burns hot against these shepherds. Why? Because he loves his people. And he sees that their affliction is due in part to the godless guidance and worldly wisdom that they've provided them. You see, Israel's shepherds should have used their power for the blessing and flourishing of the people under their charge. So God is angry with them because they've led the people into empty consolations and false hopes, ultimately away from God himself. So God has strong things to say to these worthless 
shepherds. Skipping ahead a little bit, look at chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Thus said Yahweh my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So this is God speaking to Zechariah, telling him to sort of take on this role, this representative role of the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Verse 5, those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be Yahweh, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. Here God places Zechariah symbolically in the position of Israel's shepherd, really representing God himself in his role as leader and ruler over his people. God is the one who is is the shepherd of his people. And he's putting Zechariah in this role in a symbolic way and saying, you are shepherding a flock that is doomed to slaughter because those who are supposed to lead them and care for them and nurture them and protect them are in fact selling them out. He calls his people the flock doomed to slaughter because the wicked shepherds have sold them out for their own gain. He gives this this brutal image of of some who buy the sheep from the shepherds only to slaughter them and then to go unpunished. And the shepherds who have sold them thus for slaughter then turn around and give praise to God. Praise God, I am rich. The Lord has prospered me and their wealth has been gained at the expense to the detriment and the harm of God's people. Can you imagine a more poignant and biting indictment against spiritual leaders who use their positions of authority and prestige in order to abuse and debase God's people? Was this indictment relevant only to ancient Israel? Hardly. Too many people come immediately to mind when you try to think of religious leaders, pastors, evangelists, apologists, and teachers who have been exposed for using the respect and influence and resources they've gained as a result of their position in order to take advantage of people that they're supposed to serve. Tragically, it's not uncommon in our fallen world Look ahead at verse 17, the very end of chapter 11. God says, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. God could scarcely give a more pointed and ferocious condemnation of the abuse of of authority. We have a difficult relationship with authority in our day, not only because we're sinners and we're inclined to self-exaltation, but because also we have so often seen authority misused. We have seen authority wielded as a weapon against those under its care instead of as a tool for their blessing and their flourishing. We ask at the start, how does God treat those in power Part of the answer to that question is that he holds them to close account and he exacts justice 
earned by the spiritual abuse that they perpetrate against God's people. The shepherds of Israel find a current day counterpart in the pastors and elders in Christ's churches. Pastors, uh, we're told in Ephesians 4, uh, are a gift that Jesus gives to his church. One of the words for the office of pastor or elder that the New Testament uses is the Greek poimino, which means shepherd. A pastor is a shepherd by definition and by appointment of Jesus. Jesus gives his church pastors, shepherds, in order to care for his flock, to nurture them, to provide for them, to feed them. So one clear application of Zechariah 9 to 11 is for pastors and for those who aspire to be leaders in God's church. Borrowing Peter's language in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. And he goes on to explain the nature of that shepherding ministry, not lording it over, not by dominating, but by, by influence and by gentle care and patience. Not for greedy gain, but gladly. Another clear application of this is for you, the, the sheep of God's fold. First of all, pray for your pastors. Anyone who serves or will serve as a shepherd to you in the church, pray for their growth in godly character. Pray that they would consistently use their God-given authority wisely and well for the blessing of Christ's flock. And second, refuse to follow or support any unfaithful pastor, any unfaithful shepherd. You are tasked by the Lord to listen with biblical discernment and wisdom to those who would be over you in the Lord and insist on being fed God's word and led with care and love. You shouldn't accept less from me and you should accept no less from any other men who may be your pastors in the future. These are the kind of men that Jesus gives to his church and that you should seek to follow and to honor and to pray for and to support. Well, God's anger burns against the wicked shepherds, but to see that God also holds his people accountable for how they follow his leadership and reject those who would lead them astray. Look, uh, continuing in verse uh, chapter 11, but back at verse 7 through 14, verses 7 through 14. So this is where Zechariah has been in this position, this, this sort of symbolic position as the shepherd of Israel, the, the, the flock that's doomed to slaughter. And so Zechariah explains this in further detail, beginning of chapter 11, verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is it to die? Or what is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. 
But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of Yahweh to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. I don't think this is a forward-looking prophecy predicting the future. I think it's one that looks back at the history of Israel and Judah's sin, which culminated in their exile. Zechariah represents God himself in his relationship with his people. After generations of patience and repeated warnings over and over again, and their repeated disobedience, God finally gave them over to their would-be captors and disciplined his people. I think the, the breaking of the first uh, staff, favor, is a, pre- a representation of God turning away from his people because they've broken the covenant, so it's been annulled, and he turns from them. His blessing, his favor is no longer with them. And I think the second staff, union, when it's broken, speaks of the division of the, the kingdom of Israel that happened under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, when it was divided into the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. So there's been a division already, and now there's been this uh, exile that uh, was the end result of all of the people's long disobedience. But did you notice what the people themselves did in verses 12 and 13? They're paying off Zechariah, the Lord's shepherd, to get him off their case. To silence the voice of God in their ears. He says, I'm not going to shepherd you anymore. You don't want to listen to me. If it seems good to you, pay me my wages. If not, doesn't matter. And they count up 30 pieces of silver and they pay him. Basically saying, get out of here with the word of God. We don't want to listen. We don't want to hear. The leaders of God's people are fully responsible for their stewardship of their authority. But the people themselves have responsibility as well. Not to tune out the voice of God. Not to reject the one who would call them to obedience and repentance. And here the people of Israel reject the Lord's shepherd by essentially buying him off for 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound familiar? This, of course, foreshadows another time when God's people would spend 30 pieces of silver to get rid of God's shepherd. Indeed, Matthew 27 cites this passage along with Jeremiah as a prophecy fulfilled in Judas's betrayal of Jesus for the very same sum of money. To quote Bobby Jamieson again, what price would you pay to get God off your back? What price would you pay to be able to forget his claims and ignore his demands? Is that a deal you would make if you could? How does God treat those in power? He warns them. He holds them to account. He expects them to uphold the stewardship of their position by blessing and the flourishing of his people. How does God use his own power? He exacts justice on the worthless, wicked shepherds of God's people. He rights wrongs. He disciplines sin. 
So the first way that this text answers the question of God's relationship to authority concerns worthless shepherds and God's judgment. But praise God, justice and judgment and this hard word is not all that's here. Because the next part of the answer to the question concerns the good shepherd and God's salvation. The good shepherd and God's salvation. Look once again at chapter 10, verse 3. We started with these verses. But right in the middle of of those verses, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. And here's a contrast, right? We've seen them leading the people poorly, leading them into idolatry and to seek the blessing of false gods. Here's what Yahweh does. For Yahweh of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. So in contrast with the worthless shepherds of Israel who led his people into rebellion and idolatry, the Lord of hosts cares for his flock and he will make them like his majestic steed in battle. In other words, he will tend to them faithfully, kindly, benevolently, if you will, in a way that brings them strength and stability. Indeed, if you look at the very next verse, verse four, for from him, I think that's Judah, the house of Judah, from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from every ruler, all of them together. These are all images of strength, stability, and power. The cornerstone is what made the, the, the construction of a building accurate and firm. A tent peg shows that the, the house, that the tent is, is securely in the ground and won't blow away. The battle bow, of course, is an image of military power. And this is the condition of God's people when they follow him as their shepherd. When we follow the shepherding guidance and voice and will of God as our shepherd, we are led to places of strength, of stability, of wholeness. Of course, God as a shepherd is not an uncommon image in the Old Testament. One of the most famous passages in all the Bible is Psalm 23, which depicts God in this way. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You could probably quote the rest of it. The Lord encouraged his people to think of him as their shepherd because it conveyed to them something of their need. Sheep are helpless and they can't take care of themselves and they can't defend themselves against encroaching enemies. And it conveyed something of his provision and his heart of blessing. God provides for us. He protects us. He pursues us. And the kind of shepherd that God is comes into even clearer focus in the middle of chapter 9. We've been in chapters 10 and 11 so far. Jump back to chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Let's look at these first two verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
That is a quote of Psalm 72, verse 8, which I read earlier in our service. God promises his people the return of a king. See, they've been in exile, this generation. They've returned to the land and rebuilt the temple, but they're still waiting for a king from David's line to reign again on the throne in Jerusalem. And here God assures them, your king is coming to you. And what kind of king will he be? Well, from the text, you can see he's humble. He will not lord his authority over his people, demanding his way, forcing them into submission. He's lowly. He is, to use the English word that translates this very phrase in the New Testament, gentle. This is the kind of king that he is. And he brings salvation with him. He brings peace with him. He cuts off the chariot and the war horse and the battle boat. Not needed anymore. There's going to be peace among the people of God when this king is reigning. And his rule extends from sea to sea. From the river, that's probably the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. This is the kind of king he will be when he comes. But I'm guessing that some of this language sounds pretty familiar to you. You've probably heard, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Because those lines are quoted both in Matthew 21.5 and in John 12.15 when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what's come to be known as Palm Sunday. Called that because the people laid palm branches down for his donkey to walk across. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 by his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But even more importantly than that, Jesus fulfills God's promise of a faithful, selfless shepherd. Contrary to the worthless shepherds of Israel who made themselves rich by impoverishing the people, Jesus is the shepherd who made himself poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Contrary to the worthless shepherds of Israel who slaughtered the sheep and went unpunished, Jesus is the shepherd who gave up his own life for his sheep, receiving their punishment in himself. And when we decided that the life of God's shepherd was worth about 30 pieces of silver, Jesus is the shepherd who decided that our salvation was worth his life. He followed the path of our rejection and disownment all the way to Calvary, willingly enduring the agony and disgrace of the cross so that our betrayal and iniquity might be cleansed and forgiven. Jesus said of himself in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Oh, friend, are you trusting today in the atoning death of this good shepherd, Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and named Jesus as Savior and Lord in your life? Please do it if you haven't. 
If you draw near in faith to the one who gave his life for you, you will find in him all the life you've ever needed or imagined. Well, the salvation that this shepherd king will bring his people is enumerated throughout this passage in chapter 9. We're going to go through this quickly and peruse it. In verses 1 through 8, God's people will be saved from their enemies. Right? The passage begins with the words, the oracle of the word of Yahweh is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. Damascus is the capital city of the land of Hadrach. And then it rattles off a list of historic enemies surrounding the land of Judah, working basically from north to south, if you were looking at a map, as he names these cities, Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, and Sidon, and then finally the cities of Philistia. He lists four, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. The only one that's missing is Gath, not listed there, but we have four of the five cities of Philistia. And God will bring judgment on these peoples who have harassed and oppressed Israel over the years. Look at verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited and on it goes. But notice, it's not only judgment that God will bring to these nations. Look at verse 7, the first part of it. I will take away its blood from its mouth. He's speaking here of, of the land of Philistia, where all these big cities are. The most famous Philistine that you could probably name is Goliath, right? This is the people we're talking about. I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. That has to do with the eating of meat that's been offered to, to idols. So as these Philistines are worshiping false gods and eating the meat that's been sacrificed to it, God says here, I will remove their idolatry, idolatry from them. And look in the second part of verse 7. It too, that is Philistia, shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. You see, God isn't only going to judge the nations, he's going to save them. He's going to, at least some from among them, bring them into his covenant blessing. And we've seen this throughout Zechariah, such as in the visions of chapters 1 through 6, where Jerusalem would be inhabited to overflowing, but not just with Israelites, but with people from every nation of the earth. And at the end of chapter 8, that kind of closed that whole first half of the book, God envisions the future for his people by saying, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God's salvation is not only for the nation of Israel, it's for all those who will bow themselves to his authority and live under his covenant. Verses 11 through 17 show us that God's people will be saved from captivity and oppression. So, God, so the enemies of God's people will be removed and many of them saved. 
That's a good thing to pray for, by the way. Pray for the salvation of those who persecute the church. If you think it's impossible, think about the Apostle Paul. And now God's people will be saved from captivity and oppression. Look at verse 11. I will set your prisoner free. Verse 12. Return, O prisoners of hope. Return to your stronghold. So he's dealing now with with the, the situations of oppression and injustice that his people may endure in this world. Well, the salvation that this king, Jesus, will bring ultimately will free his people from their oppression and from injustice. And the final aspect of the salvation that he brings is seen in chapter 10, verses 6 through 12. So turn there with me. Chapter 10. God's people will be gathered to him. Ultimately, salvation is the gathering of his people to himself. To be saved means I go to him. I'm with him. Look at verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. And I am Yahweh their God and I will answer them. Look down to verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them in. This is the image of a shepherd who whistles, has a specific call for his sheep, and they know his voice. Jesus said that of himself in John 10. My sheep know my voice. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. This is what God promised to his people, Israel, through the prophet Zechariah. Historically, there wasn't a large scale sort of ingathering of the people of Israel in the way that it's expressed here. So what are we to make of it? Is God's promise untrue? Not at all. It just means that its fulfillment isn't yet complete. I think it's been being fulfilled, has been fulfilled, and will be fulfilled in in stages. There's an initial fulfillment at Pentecost when the nations of the earth gathered in Jerusalem And as the Holy Spirit filled the apostles, they began speaking the wondrous works of God. And the people heard their declarations in their own native languages. So you have the nations gathered to Jerusalem and the word of God going forth. And they're hearing it and receiving it. So there's perhaps an initial, almost symbolic kind of fulfillment there. There's a, a progressive fulfillment of this promise throughout History throughout this age as peoples around the world come to faith in Israel's anointed king and shepherd, Jesus Christ. When those who are not Jewish, ethnically Jewish, turn to the Jewish Messiah in faith and repentance, this prophecy is being fulfilled. The nations are gathering in. And the promise of this ingathering will find its ultimate fulfillment in a future kingdom. When the shepherd gathers to himself all his sheep from every tribe, nation, and language of the earth 
to dwell in safety with him forever. The good shepherd and the salvation that he brings. You know, Zechariah's book at its heart is a call to God's people to return to him. That's how it started. Chapter 1, verse 3, return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. And this promise of salvation, of, of gathering his own to himself forever, is the end result of that return. Returning to God leads to the gathering of all of the sheep of Jesus into his presence. To return to God is to find in him a home, a safe haven of rest, a place of belonging that you'll simply never find in anything this world has to offer. This is how our shepherd king, Jesus, uses his power and authority. Not to defraud and destroy you, but to lead you to safe, abundant pasture and quiet, still waters for the restoring of your soul and the enjoyment of his presence. Friends, amid the noise of war and rumors of war, the endless ranting of talk show hosts and politicians, the fury and fear of the so-called prophetic voices of doom and gloom, and the whispers of shame and guilt from your own heart, hear the calm, steady voice of God calling, inviting you, return to me, and I will return to you. Let's pray.